All right, well, yesterday, uh, my family and I were in Bend, Oregon, and uh, we got up at 6 a.m. to start driving, and it had been, um, Bend is kind of an interesting place, because it snows in Bend, but then it gets really warm, and then it snows and gets really warm, and the snow goes away almost every day. It doesn't really stick around. It will on Mount Bachelor, but not necessarily in Bend. Well, it snowed big, and then overnight, it froze after it melted, and so it was a, it was a icy day going out of Bend. But I wanted to get home. I wanted to preach. And I did call my dad on Friday night and said, hey, if we get stuck, can you be ready to go with Romans 5? And he said, please get stuck. He loves Romans 5. <laughs> um, he, he even called back and said, even if you're just too tired, just uh, I'll take it. Uh, and so we get, we get on the road and uh, it was terrifying. Um, it, my, like, we were up there with all the family, and they were like, you don't have to go, you don't have to go, and we're like, no, we have to go, and uh, so we got on the road, and it was, it was terrifying. There was, you know, it was slippery everywhere. The scariest part of the drive, uh, we got behind this semi-truck, and, and from a distance, we couldn't quite tell what was going on, because we could see the cab of the truck, and then we could see the trailer of the truck uh, kind of off to the side, but it wasn't slowing down. The guy was just going full speed, and the whole trailer of the truck was taking up two lanes of the road. He did that for about two miles, and we could not figure out what he was doing, but eventually a passing lane opened up, and as soon as it did, he got over to the side and stopped because he, he didn't want to block the whole road. But this guy's back wheels had locked up, and we're just sliding full speed, 55 miles an hour down the ice. It was uh, a terrifying thing. So we finally get out of the ice, and we get down kind of past Mount Shasta into Redding, and Redding was beautiful. We stopped for coffee, and uh, then as soon as we got on the road after Redding, uh, the atmospheric river hit, and we got to experience a different weather element, and that was rain and floods and mudslides happening pretty much everywhere you could find. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, Siri knew all about the mudslides. So... Uh, it, was, it was everywhere, and uh, again, another scary moment. You know those signs that Caltrans puts up that tell you to slow down, and they flash, uh, and the temporary ones that they can tow to different places? Uh, somebody had obliterated one of those signs. I have never seen so many pieces of a Caltrans sign scattered all over the side of the freeway. This thing was smashed to pieces, and I thought... That's ironic and scary and all of those things. And, uh, and so then we get down a little ways further and we get towards, uh, like, the, we took the 101 because I was worried about the grapevine closing. So we get down to, like, the San Luis Obispo area and the wind kicks in. And the wind was so intense. I mean, the stuff that was flying across the freeway, actually, even when we hit Oxnard last night, like, you, you would splash through the water, and the water wouldn't hit the car behind you. It would hit three cars over. Like, it would go up and blow lanes over as you're driving through this. I, I'm telling all this because it was one of those days where it felt like every possible element was in front of us to get, to get home. Like, it just, it was thing after thing after thing after thing after thing. So we pull into our, uh, we left at 6 a.m. in Bend, pull into our driveway at 10.30. I peel my fingers off the steering wheel and, uh, and go <laughs> sit in the hot tub for about 20 minutes to try and uncork from that drive. But we got home, and I just, I think reflecting on that drive a little bit, realizing that for a lot of us, this is the, the life that we're living. It's just, just kind of going through life, holding on, doing our best to see through the absolute chaos that's taking place in front of us and trying not to uh, spin out or go into a snowbank or, you know, some other tragic thing. We're just holding on for dear life and hoping that we get where we're trying to go. And I, I just felt this sense as I was getting ready for today of 
wanting to see us be a people that in the midst of a world, you have no idea what's going to happen in 2023. Like you can't, you can't predict it. We can't predict the stock market. We can't predict the housing market. We can't predict the, uh, how much electricity is going to cost. We can't predict weather anomalies. We can't predict world wars. We can't predict politics. We have no idea what's going to happen in the, in the coming year. So what, what can we do? Like what, do we, what do we hold on to? Where do we find hope and confidence? Where where do we find foundation? As followers of Jesus, is it any different for us than it is for the world? Do we go through this life any differently than the world goes through this life? And this passage that we're in today is Romans chapter 5. A couple weeks ago, Rob taught Romans 5, 1 through 5. uh, And my job today is to teach Romans 5, 1 through 11. And it's not because Rob didn't teach the full passage. We actually did those first five verses because they are loaded enough that they need their own attention. They needed to be taught as a unique autonomous message. But then the challenge is you can't teach 6 through 11 without 1 through 5. So you really do need the full Romans 5, 1 through 11 to understand what Paul is trying to say. But ultimately what Paul is doing is he's helping us establish what are we? Who are we and how are we in the midst of a chaotic world? He's trying to give us something to put our feet on, something in the midst of storms, of the craziness of the world around us. What's different about us as believers? Paul names it in Romans 5, 1 through 11, and helps us have what we need to go through this life. And so I'm, I'm genuinely hoping that this is a, a day of equipping for you. Like equipping you to step into the year. We didn't plan this as a New Year's Day message. It just so happens that today is New Year's Day, but it is about the best message that we could pick for New Year's Day. Going into a year of unknowns, what can we know? So that's what we're going to be in today. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Romans chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. If you'd like a Bible, there's some in the aisles. We'll also have it on the screen behind me. All right, so Paul writes. He says, Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. All right, this is a massive passage couple of things that I want to talk about. The first is that one of the key themes here is the word rejoice. Paul uses it three different times, and it's a little bit unfortunate that uh, our English translation translates this with the word rejoice. 
Because the word is different than if you go to Philippians 4 and you see rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice, that's a different word than this, this word. In fact, this word is the same word that Paul uses in chapter 2, verse 17, when he says this. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and then he goes on from there. That word boast is the same word that Paul uses here for rejoice. And the English translators picked rejoice because they wanted it to be happy, and boast has kind of a negative connotation. But Paul's actually doing something very intentional with these words. What he talked about in chapter 2 was, hey, as a Jewish person, you find your identity in the law. And that's a, a misplaced identity. How good you are at keeping the law, well, that's, that's going to fall short every time. That's what he spent the entirety of chapter 2 talking about is, it doesn't matter how good you are at keeping the law, it's not enough. We talked about this, uh, this quote from Tim Keller uh, when we talked through chapter 2 just a few weeks back. Tim talks about boasting this way. He says, what you boast in is what gives you confidence to go out and face the day. It is the thing of which you say, I am somebody because I have that. I can beat what comes against me today because I am this. What you boast in is what fundamentally defines you. It is where you draw your identity and self-worth from. And so as Paul's wrestling with boasting, he's not just talking about being prideful. We talked about the, the football dance or touchdown celebrations. That's not the kind of boasting that Paul has in mind. Paul's actually talking about where you find your identity. And so all the way back in chapter 2, he's saying if you find your self-worth in how good you are at keeping the law, well, that's a miss. And what he's getting at in chapter 5, see, now he's actually establishing, okay, as Christians... Let's talk about where we can find our self-worth. Let's talk about where we can find our identity. What do we boast in as followers of Jesus? And so then he goes in and he talks about that rejoicing, that boasting. Where can we boast as believers? If you notice this passage, it's really interesting. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 are almost identical. They're saying the same thing. And whenever you get something like that, you kind of have this parenthesis that's formed, this bracket that's formed that says, look at everything in between. It's all explaining what I said on the two ends, all right? So that's the idea of what Romans 5 is, is it's Paul talking about what we can boast in and then closing in what we can boast in and then in between talking about why we can boast in those things, why we can find our identity and our self-worth in the things that God has done for us. So let's talk about what those things are. What can we boast in as believers? Number one, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. So if you look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith. Okay, so that's, uh, you know, we've said this about a thousand times. Whenever you see a therefore, you always stop to see what it's. Therefore, uh, he's summarizing Romans chapters 1 through 4, not summarizing, but implying all of the things that are implied from Romans 1 through 4, he lays out. Since we've been justified by faith, as opposed to what? Works. So instead of being justified by works, we've been justified by faith. It's a completely different understanding of the gospel. 
This isn't dependent on what you can do. This is actually dependent on what God has done. And Paul's established, you have been justified by what God did in Jesus Christ. And it was by your faith in what he did. That's what justified you. But he's the source. He's the mechanism of your salvation. He's the origin of your salvation, not what you can do. So Paul says, since that's true, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this peace with God idea is pretty wild. Peace with God has to do with this concept of reconciliation. It's talking about a, a fractured relationship. Uh, we've, since the day we started, we've used uh, a phrase as our kind of our mission statement, helping people find their way back to God. And we've gotten asked a number of times, like, what do you mean back to God? Like, when you say that, what, what do you mean back to God? Are you out here only looking at de-churched people or people that used to be followers of Jesus and you're trying to scoop them all up and, and help them reconnect with God? Is that the mission? Rather, we would look at it and say, we believe that all human beings are designed, created with the intent of being in relationship with God. See, we're made in the imago Dei. We're made in the image of God. And our sin has fractured our relationship with God. We were supposed to be like Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God in right relationship with no sin barrier in between. That's how the Bible starts and that's how the Bible finishes. That's Genesis and that's Revelation. That's the ultimate end game is to remove the barrier of sin so that we are in right relationship with God. We were created for that. Any human being that is not in right relationship with God is a malfunctioning human being. And I don't say that to be offensive. I say that as a matter of biblical fact. You're not right spiritually. You're not right as a human apart from a right relationship with God. And that's what God is seeking to create is a pathway to restore relationship. That's why we say back to God. Even though we are separated from birth, we're, we're sinners, we believe in total depravity and understand that we are like subject to the consequences of our sinful state, we're designed to be in right relationship with God. And so this idea of reconciliation, well, that's what, what God is in the business of doing. He's healing a broken relationship. He's putting together what was fractured. That's the work that God is doing. And so the issues at play are baked into that word peace. See, when you were still away from God, there are a few different words that Paul uses to describe your state. And he uses them all here in Romans 5. Weak, sinner, enemy. Those are three descriptors that Paul will use. If you look at this, he says, while we were weak while we were still sinners, and while we were enemies. So Paul's actually talking about what God did before any of those things changed. God accomplished something, but he uses those three words to describe our state. And these have to do with us being uh, enemies of God, at war with God, apart from God, and why anybody that does not know Jesus is not at peace with God. There's turmoil in their inner person. Whether they feel it or not, it's not emotional turmoil. It is a spiritual turmoil that exists in all people that are not united to God through Jesus Christ. 
So let's talk about those three words, weak, sinful, and enemy. Number one is weak. Let's look at that. I think it's verse 6. Yep, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, while we were still weak. I love how Paul uses that. We were st- look, we were still weak. Because now we have power. But, but then, we were still weak. We had no capacity in ourselves to accomplish anything righteous or good. That's what Paul means when he says, while we were still weak. You didn't have it in you. This is Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. None is righteous, not even one. We were still incapable of a good and right decision to follow God. You didn't have it in you, and so that's your weakness. That's the weak that Paul is referencing when he says, while we were still weak, that Christ died for the ungodly. The second thing that he talks about is us being sinners in verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, being a sinner is sort of an identity marker of a person that is defined by sin. A person that is marked by not being righteous, but instead being a sinner. It's sometimes wicked, sometimes ungodly. Those are the different words that are used in the scriptures. But being a sinner is this idea that we are in the category of people defined by being against God. Going away from God's way. See, we talk about practicing the way of Jesus. As as followers of Jesus, we talk about walking in obedience to him. We're looking for what it means for us to grow in our submission to the Holy Spirit. And these are all things that are taking us in the way of God. But before we gave our lives to Jesus, we were sinners and none of those things were available to us. We were broken down sinners. Paul looks at us and he says, hey, while that was still the case, you hadn't done anything to like spark some life in God and say, oh yeah, I want this person. Oh, there's some, there's some good in there. I think I can do something with that. I'm going to go and I'm going to rescue that person. Sometimes we might think that like, well, doesn't God want to get out there and save the good people? And doesn't he want to get out there and destroy the bad people? And this is what Paul's been building for chapters. Well, who's good in that standard? Who's good in that standard? Nobody, not even one, would be the good person that God would want to save. And so if God's desire to save is based on the good that's in people, then nobody gets salvation. Not even one. God's desire to save came entirely from his compassion. Entirely from his grace and his mercy. And that's why Paul says, wow, we were still sinners. This is how God demonstrates his love, his compassion, his mercy. Is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You did nothing to change your deserving nature. God did this before you deserved it. And then the last one, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I know you don't think of yourself as an enemy of God before you came to life in Christ. But that's what the Bible sees. Everybody that's not a follower of Jesus is an enemy of God. That's just kind of a, it's kind of a crazy concept. It almost feels a little bit harsh. Like how, 
okay, I get that we're sinners. Like we're on the evil side and he's on the good side. We're sinners. But an enemy actually sounds malicious. It sounds like, like I don't love God. It sounds like I don't want God to save me. It sounds like I'm a rebel. And that's, that's exactly what you are. Prior to coming to faith in Jesus, there's a war. In this war, God is righteous and just, and he will punish the ungodly. God will pour out his wrath righteously on all sin. Anybody that's on the receiving end of God's wrath would be called an enemy of God. And you might be thinking, but God so loves the world, how can he have any enemies? Like, why would God have an enemy if he loves the world? And the reality is, God does love the world. But those who reject his love, they are in the category of an enemy of God. Against him. working on behalf of Satan to keep evil going in the world. Whether you know it or not, that's the person that's under the domain of darkness. And that language, it feels so steep and so harsh and hard to wrap our heads around, but it's important to understand that before I gave my life to Jesus, I was an enemy of God. And so what the implications of that are is that everybody out there that has not yet given their lives to Jesus, is at this very moment an enemy of God. Now, how does God act towards his enemies? God is patient with them, not wanting that any should perish. That's how Peter describes it. Jesus teaches us to love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us, you can see why the language uh, about those on the outside all throughout the Bible is so critical because it's important to understand that we're not the ones that are supposed to say, go get them, God, like bring out your wrath. Paul will tell us later in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's like, hey, I, I'll take care of vengeance. I'm calling you to be agents of reconciliation, people of peace, ministers of mercy. I'm calling you to go out into this world with a different kind of attitude than the one that, that goes to, to throw down fire on enemies of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take care of wrath in due time, but for right now, he is patient with his enemies, loving them, leading them, hopefully, to repentance that they might turn towards him. But I just want to say this. As, an, as a former enemy of God, all of our attitudes towards the enemies of God should be the same as God's attitude towards the enemies of God. To be patient with them. To want that not one would perish. Have you ever seen these stories of people, uh, somebody commits a heinous crime against their family, and the trial completes, and then they interview the person afterwards, and, and the person's just like, look, I, I've forgiven them. I just want God's grace for them. I, I want them to experience God's love. Like, you see this, and you're... 
You think, how could somebody do that? I could never, if somebody did that to my family, I could never. And we think that way sometimes, like our, our stomachs just turn. Like it's so hard to envision how did that person come to that place where they could say, I've forgiven them. And then you start to realize like, oh, that, that was me and that's God. This is what he sent us into the world to be is the people who shock the world with the mercy and grace of God. So, enemies of God. That was us. But now, something has radically transformed. We are at peace with God. So something in you has fundamentally changed in light of Jesus' sacrifice. You are at peace with God. There's no war left between you. When God sees you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus and his righteousness. He has justified you as in declaring you righteous. He has saved you. He has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You are called heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. You are temples of the Holy Spirit containers, vessels of the presence of God, and everything about you right now is at peace with God. There is no war left between you and God. You're right with him. Now, sometimes as Christians, we're like, yeah, but I don't feel right with God. I don't feel right with God because I just sinned, I just lied, I just uh, I, I, I lusted, I wanted somebody to, to have harm happen to them. We think of all the things that we do. And that was in the last two hours. And so we're like, there's no way that I'm at peace with God. And this is Paul saying, stop. Stop. Stop arguing with what is absolute since we have been justified by faith, we are at peace. We have peace with God. Don't fight it. To fight against that is to argue with an absolute that God has declared over you. You have peace. It's yours. There's no contention left. None. Now what we're going to get into over the course of this, is how do we live as people outwardly that have peace inwardly with God? That's going to change us. So we'll get into that. So that's the first major implication of since we've been justified, we boast in that we are at peace with God. We rejoice, we rest, we, we, we shout that we are at peace with God. That is something of significance. Not because what you did, not because you accomplished the law, but you were justified by faith, so you're at peace with God. So that's what we boast in. God gave me peace with him. That's what I boast in. The second thing is that we have God's love. Look at verse 5. I, I realize that skipping over boasting in our sufferings, uh, knowing that our, our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Unbelievable passage. Rob did a great job teaching on it. This idea of boasting in our sufferings, Paul's just saying, look, you can approach this world differently. When you have peace with God, you know that whatever you're going through is not God trying to get you. I, I know I said I wasn't going to preach on it. Now I'm preaching on it. Uh, you can boast in sufferings 
Let's just say, I mean, go through the list. All, there's all the health ones. There's cancer. There's infertility. There's, uh, you know, just all kinds of difficulties that we have. ALS. We've seen just unbelievable physical uh, challenges that people go through. And if you are in Christ, you can boast in those sufferings because you know that God is not out to get you. He's not doing that to harm you. He's not doing that to hurt you. Those sufferings aren't there because God wants to just apply a little bit of pressure because he just haven't quite been as passionate as he wanted you to be. You haven't been quite as missional as he wanted you to be. You haven't been quite as generous as he wanted you to be. This isn't God saying, ah, I'm just going just gonna to keep him down. That's not why you boast in sufferings. You boast in sufferings because God sees you. And he says, okay. I'm going to walk you through these tests, these trials, these challenges, these difficulties. And as you go through them, you're going to experience life with me through a trial. And what comes out of that is endurance. You become a person of resilience. You become a better person human being in this life because you've gone through some of the hardships of this world. You're, you're tested. And that's ultimately what he says. He says these sufferings produce endurance. And endurance produces character. We talked about that on Christmas Eve, that, that tested character. Showing yourself to be capable, faithful, full of the Spirit of God. You are You've been through the storms and you've come back in and there you are full of joy and hope and readiness for the next challenge. And this is God saying, you are capable of anything with the Spirit of God in you. This is why Paul will say, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I can go with abundance, I can go with nothing. I can go through literally anything that the world throws at me because I have Christ who gives me strength. That's our character. And so we boast in sufferings. As people of Jesus, we boast in sufferings. God's testing me, not testing me like asking me to show myself faithful. He's testing me like causing me to go through things because he is cultivating character in me. I know that we talked about this a little bit on Christmas Eve, so I won't go too deep into it, but parents, again, keeping our kids out of anything difficult does not cultivate resilience and character. Preventing anything bad from ever happening to them is not the means of helping them grow to become the people of Jesus. Showing them that God is with them in difficulty walking with them through those challenges and helping them see God in those storms, that produces character in them. 
But if you just go before them, I think the, the phrase now is snowplow. It used to be helicopter parent, now it's snowplow parent. If you just go before and all you do is just pave the way for your kids that there's no resistance, that they're, they're behind you and they don't have to go through any of the difficulty, if that's your job as a parent, then it, it doesn't actually teach them what it means to face some of those storms and, and challenges. And this is what God does with us. He's not a snowplow God. I know we want him to reduce the resistance in life. God, make it easier. I don't want quite so much resistance. I don't want quite so much difficulty. God, just kind of make that snowplow happen. Just kind of move those obstacles out of the way because I, I want the end without the means. I want to get there without going through the difficulty. But God is with us journeying through those trials and those difficulties and ultimately he's producing hope and hope does not put us to shame and this is Paul's reasoning for hope not putting us to shame because God's love look at this terminology God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us okay so the word poured is a great word It's not, it's not like a gentle word. In fact, the, the same word used for poured is when Jesus tells the story about uh, new wine in old wineskins. Or is it old wine in new wineskins? I forget. Whichever one. The wineskin bursts. That's the same word for poured out. So the, the picture is not like, you know, a little pitcher of water and, and God just, just kind of giving you just a, a little bit. The picture is God with like a, like a five-gallon bucket from Home Depot, and you're down here, and he's just like just pouring out his love into our hearts. That's the, the picture. It's just the like splashing, overflowing, uncontrollable outpouring. Now, I want to show you where else this word is used, because it's pretty awesome. It's used for the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit is talked about being given to us. Go to Acts chapter 2, verse 17. You don't have to go there. It'll be on the screen. We'll move quickly through this because I'm already at 39 minutes. Wow, that went fast. Did that go fast for you? Because that went fast for me. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh. <laughs> Halfway through a message at 39 minutes. That's rough. Okay. Sorry, I lost track of time. All right. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Then verse 18, even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Titus chapter 3 verses 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So why can we boast? We boast because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit 
is to show you the love of God over and over and over and over. Now, I will tell you this, and this is something that I've read in a few different places. There's some early church fathers that will write about this and some very much more recent people that will write about this. Generally speaking, the people that experience more of the Holy Spirit's outpouring of God's love are people that have cultivated or tuned their heart to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit through prayer, through scripture memory, through being still and quiet with God, through slowing down. The practices that we participate in are not just practices to become better Christians. They are to tune our ears to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And those people generally have an increased experience of knowing that they are loved by God. Like knowing meaning that epignosis. Do you know that gnosis, epignosis? There's knowing like head knowledge and there's knowing because you've been through it. The epignosis is the knowing because you've been through it. And people that, that have cultivated a relationship with the Holy Spirit generally hear more from God that he loves them and that he's with them. Now, even if you can't hear it, you know it. So Paul actually gives us subjective love of God and objective love of God in this same passage. Subjective, God has poured out his love through the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so there's many of us that have felt that. There have been times, and I'll just tell you, there have been times where I've been alone and I've started crying, just feeling totally overwhelmed by the love of God. Like just... Nobody around, no worship music playing, nobody preaching. You just see something and it just triggers. The Spirit's just speaking or singing or ministering and it just like hits. That's what Paul's talking about here. You may have had those moments. You may have had those in special moments. You may have had those in mundane moments. But just when, this, when the Spirit just kind of meets you in a moment, maybe it's in a worship song and you're just like, I can't handle this right now. Or somebody praying over you and you just start weeping uncontrollably. Or, or just the, the, the ministry of nature and you're out on a hike and you just stop and think, what? God, this is unbelievable. And those are the, the ministry of the Spirit pouring out the love of God. It's subjective. Doesn't happen to everybody all the time. But the Spirit ministers to us. The objective love is this. Verse 8. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if anybody out there is arguing against God's love, or maybe you're like, well, I've never really felt the Holy Spirit pouring out the love of God in my heart. So I don't know if God loves me. Well, Paul, he, he established that, that the Holy Spirit does that, and there's ways to experience that in greater capacity. But that it is, it is legitimately subjective. People will experience different things with the Holy Spirit depending on their willingness to hear him. But the objective love of God, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The inescapable reality of God's love that is true for every single person, whether you feel it or not, is that while you were still a sinner, Jesus went to the cross with you in mind. And you can't escape that. That's just reality. 
That is the objective love of God. Jesus on the cross. This is Paul saying, we always know all the time that God loves us because of the cross. You will never not know that God loves you. If anybody tries to say, I don't think God loves me, they must have had a concussion or just feel like they're completely disregarding the scriptures because it just isn't true. It's denying fact. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is objectively true that God loves you and he loves his enemies. He has proven it because Jesus died not just for the righteous, but for the unrighteous, that they might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He loves them. Whether they receive that love or not is to be determined, but he has demonstrated his love for them in that while they are still sinners, he died for them. So one, we have peace with God. Two, we have the love of God. And three, we boast in that we have received reconciliation. Go down to verse 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God or boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And this is kind of where we'll, we'll close up and I'll, I'll wrap it up here. Reconciliation is a done deal. Now, in our lives, most of us have experienced some kind of fractured relationship horizontally. Somebody with parents or a spouse or a sibling or a friend. Uh, we've had people that have, we've had relationships that have fractured. Uh, for me personally, just in the last three years, I've had two very significant friendships that are no, they no longer exist. They've, they've been cut off completely via text. And in that, like the, the pain is real, and it's, it's loss, it's grief. I want those relationships to be restored. I don't want those things to just be left undone. I want them to be right. I think about these people. Their pictures show up in my feed. They're, uh, they're, they're friends. They're people that I've done life with. And something is, is not right when those relationships are not restored. And I imagine you feel the same way. Just life is unfinished when those relationships aren't restored. Reconciliation is something that we, that we long for. And so what, what Paul's saying is, I want you to understand this, that in Jesus, reconciliation has happened. You're not working to repair your relationship with God. Think about that for just a second. If you're in Christ, you're not working to repair your relationship with God. You can grow in your experience of his lordship in your life. You can grow in your submission to the Holy Spirit. You can repent of your sinful actions and thoughts and you can grow in Christ-likeness and experience more of what it is to be like Jesus. But you have reconciliation. So many people will use that phrase, I gotta get right with God. I just gotta get right with God. Even Christians will use that. Ah, I just got to, it's New Year's Day. I got to get back in the swing. Got to get back to church. Got to get right with God. Stop. 
Don't use that sentence anymore unless you're not a Christian. And then, yes, you need to get right with God. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are right with God now. Today. You could turn to the person next to them, next to you right now, and cuss them out. And you're still right with God. Mark and Janelle, you guys want to go ahead? (laughs) Just try it. Just a little experiment. No, you're good? Okay. Now, Paul will say in chapter 6, this is why the the gospel is like, it's, it's, he's, he's testing the bounds of it. Because he has to ask the question in Romans 6, so do we keep on sinning so that there's more great? Like, do we just, do we test that theory? And Paul's like, no, no, you don't test it, but just know that that's, that's how reconciled you are. You can't, if you're in Christ, you can't break that reconciliation. Now, there's reasons not to sin, but when you sin, it doesn't mean that you're not reconciled to God. It doesn't mean that you've fractured the relationship. It doesn't mean that you've done something that needs to be repaired. You have reconciliation. So now let's talk for just, give me two minutes to talk about what it would mean to live in this world as a person reconciled to God. There's a guy, uh, he's a pastor in Australia, his name's Mark Sayers. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, he's a friend of a friend, but he's written a few books that are very helpful. And one of the books that he's written, I won't even mention anything in the book, just the title itself is very helpful. He wrote a book called A Non-Anxious Presence. A non-anxious presence. The whole book is about how in a chaos world, what does it look like for followers of Jesus to be a non-anxious presence in a world filled with anxiety? And this is, it's a great phrase because that's the picture of living out a reconciled life, peace with God. See, when we have this settled, it gives us so much confidence to do life Completely differently. Think about, just uh, if you're married, think about this. Like, let's say you've had a little tiff with your spouse, okay? Just something, a little something in between you. Things aren't quite right or where they should be. It's happened to all of us. At at some point, it's happened to all of us. I don't know what it does to you. For me, I get insecure. It just makes me second-guess my words, my actions. Uh, Just, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm out of sorts until we've reconciled. Like, I just, I feel funky. And what Paul's saying to you is, okay, that will never happen between you and God. That is erased. The out of sorts. You can be certain at all times that you're right with God. So now you can live with the confidence that you're not working to repair a relationship here. That's done by Jesus. And so now you get to go with full confidence and full security in your identity because you're boasting. He fixed the relationship. It's settled. I am right with God. And now we can face whatever storms the world is throwing at us. We can face whatever difficulties are coming at us knowing secure in a right relationship with God. It's done and finished. And so then we can go and we can bless this world because there's no spiritual turmoil in us. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me besides still waters. He makes me lie down 
in green pastures. He restores my soul. God is gently walking with us through this life, and there's no turmoil at all. There's none. Somehow, some way, even when you're disobedient, there's no turmoil. And so as believers, one of our jobs is to bring the peace of God into the world that we're in. To be able to go into people who are experiencing spiritual turmoil. Whose hearts are restless because they've not yet found their rest in God. And we can be people of peace. We can bless them. And encourage them. Pray for them. Speak the truth of the gospel into their lives. Build them up. And we are not worried about our state about our situation. So what Paul's doing is he is just pouring out the gospel into the lives of the Romans. He's trying to help them understand what it means to be a people in a completely chaotic world. Rome was totally chaotic in the first century. And he's saying, look, there's no war with the gods, which was very much the case in Rome. Always a war with the gods. There's no war with the gods. This is why when we do offering, we're very clear about this. Like We don't do offering to try and appease God. There's no, in your giving as a follower of Jesus, there's no money that will somehow come and, and you bring this sacrifice and you're laying it before God hoping that he will, you know, be good to you. That, that's a pagan religion. That's not right. You don't take communion in hopes that, that maybe it magically reconciles you to God. That's a pagan religion. You can't do anything to appease God's wrath because Jesus already did it. And if you are in Christ, there is no wrath left for you. You can't show up at church hoping that God will be pleased with you. That is a pagan religion. All of these things we do because the love of Christ compels us to be different in this world. You have it, and it changes your entire motivation for why you would parent, why you would spouse, why you would sibling, why you would kid, why you would be any of the roles that you're in relationally. It changes why you would give, why you would be generous, why you would minister to a homeless person, why you would bless somebody that's in difficulty, why you would do those things is not so that, it's because. And that changes your attitude and helps people experience the peace of God more completely. I really need to, I could honestly, there's so much. We could just keep swimming. This is like snorkeling in Hawaii. We could just keep going around the next bend and the next bend and the next bend. It's so good. But we'll stop because we want to now take some time and worship together. But some of my hope for this is that you would just, even in your singing, that we boast, we boast in what God has accomplished for us. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our time together today. And I just, I pray that this would be a, a day full of faith for a year full of your presence. Lord, that we would walk out of here today ready for absolutely anything that this world is going to throw at us. 
Not because we are capable of taking it on, but because you, God, are in us. We have peace with you. We have your love. We are reconciled. We are right with you, Lord. Now we walk in confidence. And confidence does not disappoint. It does not put us to shame. It's in your name we pray. Amen.